Would you pray with me? You do deserve all praise. And you do deserve all glory. Our glorious Christ who came, whose coming we celebrate even today. We thank you for this season. We thank you for this time that we can focus on your coming into this world. Because without your coming, there would be no death. Without your coming, there would be no salvation. Without your coming, we wouldn't be here. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that it speaks to us even today. These words that were penned many, many years ago are still relevant to us. And they demonstrate for us how we ought to worship you and the heart that we ought to have that would respond to your coming. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word now. I pray for every heart that you would till the soil and that the seed that would be sown would bear fruit. We know that you're a sovereign Lord over all things. And we ask that in this next hour you would be exalted for your glory, we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and you can turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And our passage today will be verses 46 through 51. Celebrating Christmas has a significant part in a Christian calendar. We can say that the most significant day for a Christian is the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On that Sunday morning when he walked out of that tomb, he confirmed that his work on the cross was accomplished and that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. That's why every Sunday we come together and in a sense, it is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Sunday is the Lord's Day. But there would be no resurrection Sunday without the birth of Christ. And therefore, it is important for us to stop, and even though Scripture doesn't command us to celebrate Jesus' birthday, it is important for us to stop and to look at these events because they play a significant role in our lives. Now, when we think about Christmas, when we think about all the events surrounding the birth of Christ, there are many individuals who played major roles. Perhaps no one played a more significant role than Mary herself, the mother of Jesus. Now, given what the Catholic Church has done to Mary, there is reluctance in many circles to even speak about Mary because we don't want to elevate her or exalt her or worship her as they do. This year we had a class where we examined the teachings of Roman Catholic Church and we spent much time talking about their understanding of who Mary is and how you ought to worship her. And yes, they do worship her. Roman Catholic Church makes the following claims regarding Mary. One, they say that Mary, they teach immaculate conception. An immaculate conception of Mary, not of Jesus. What they would say is that Mary herself was conceived and was born without sin. Second, they teach that Mary is the mother of God. And their logic goes something like this. Well, we believe that Jesus is divine. We believe that Jesus is God. And yes, we agree with that, with Catholics, that Jesus was God. And since Mary was mother of Jesus, who was God, therefore Mary is the mother of God. Furthermore, Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary did not experience death or decay but she was assumed miraculously into heaven. When it comes to the work of redemption and salvation, Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a co-redemptrix with Christ. They call Mary the mediatrix of all grace. 
In other words, they say that if you want to be saved, you got to come to God through Mary. In fact, Mary has a very special power over Jesus, and Jesus would never refuse his mother. You know, as a mother, Mary is tender-hearted, and she would always hear you. But you know what? God sometimes is reluctant. No wonder for every prayer Roman Catholics pray to God, they pray ten to Mary. Because they believe that you get access to God through her. As such, they teach that Mary is to be venerated. They created a special category of worship, which they called hyperdulia, which is reserved for Mary alone. Listen to a prayer offered to Mary. O Immaculate and Holy Pure Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Queen of the world, Thou art the joy of the saints. Thou art the peacemaker between sinners and God. Thou art the advocate of the abandoned, the secure haven of those who are in the sea of this world. Thou art the consolation of this world, the ransom of slaves, the comforter of the afflicted, the salvation of the universe. That's a prayer to Mary. Michael Knowles interviewed Father Dan Real, who is a priest and the exorcist in the Nashville area. He said the following regarding Mary. This is the person Jesus loved the most on the planet. And if you really loved him, wouldn't you want to know her? She's not God, but he has given her great authority and power and the ability to distribute grace through her hands because of his love for her. And the only thing she does is lead people back to him. If they came to know that, they would be running to her because the fastest way to get close to Jesus is to go through his mother because he designed it that way. That is what they teach regarding Mary. Now it's safe to say that the Mary of the Bible has never heard a single prayer prayed by countless Roman Catholics. The Mary of the Bible has not appeared to a single individual after she died, and yes, she did die. The Mary of the Bible is not the mother of God, but she is the mother of Jesus. God does not have a mother. Jesus was God, and Jesus was man. And because Mary was his mother, she was the mother of Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, besides giving birth to Jesus, Mary played no part in redemptive history. She gave birth to the Savior, of whom we'll talk about today, but she is not a core redeemer. She did not suffer with Christ. She does not give you access to God in any way. She is not a mediatrix of grace because God is the God of grace. In fact, it is blasphemous to assert that Mary is compassionate and gracious while God is reluctant to show mercy. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for Mary so loved the world. Is that what it says? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is the God of grace. God is the God of compassion. Mary of the Bible would recoil in horror if she ever heard a prayer that is prayed to her or worship that is offered by countless Catholics. Now, although... Roman Catholics have turned Mary into a pagan goddess. Scripture does describe her for us. 
We don't have to guess. All the things that I mentioned that they believe, you will not find them anywhere in the Bible. Bible gives us a different perspective on Mary. And because she played such a significant role in the events surrounding Christmas, we want to talk about that today. In fact, Luke, for us in our passage, records words of Mary that debunk most of the things that Roman Catholic teach about her. For this reason, we want to look at the Magnificat that is recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55. Now, just so you're not confused, Magnificat is not about a magnificent cat. It is just a Latin word that begins this section, which simply means praise or magnified. Now, as we will read this text, you will see how God-centered Mary is. This section here, verses 46 through 55, they are full of illusions or quotations of the Old Testament. When Mary says, for example, in verse 46, my soul exalts in the Lord, she's echoing Psalms Psalm 34, where it says, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. When she declares that God is the Savior, she recalls the words from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3, where it says, My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield in the heart of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. She alludes to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1 when she speaks of her humble state. Listen to these words. 1 Samuel 1.11, she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. Her claim that all the generations will remember her sound like the words of Leah in Genesis 30 where she says, Happy am I, for women will call me happy. In verse 49, she adopts the words of Psalm 126, where she says, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Again, in verse 49, she declares that God is holy. And this is based on numerous texts all throughout the scripture, like Psalm 99, verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. In verse 50, she directly quotes Psalm 103, verse 17. And if you look at verse 53, you will see that that is also a quote of Psalm 107, verse 9. Now keep in mind that Mary at this time is a young teenager. You can say that Mary knew her Bible. You can almost make a case that she memorized some of it. See, she was well-versed, and not only did she know her Bible, notice she makes connection between passages, and she doesn't just quote a passage like, you know, she just memorized the text, but she makes connections, oh, he said it here and here, and so that means this, and so she makes these theological connections, which means she was well-versed in Scripture. She was well-trained because she went to the synagogue, and she heard the Word of God regularly. Now, this song is a song of an exaltation of God. Now, is this not what Christmas is all about? Or is this not what Christmas should be all about? The music, the joy, the presents, decorations, and all the rest, they're all good. But ultimately, they point to the ultimate reason for the season, which is the birth of a Savior. Now, based on our text, I want to give you four reasons to exalt God this Christmas. 
Four reasons to exalt God this Christmas. The first two reasons have to do with who he is, and the second two reasons have to do with what he does. Join me as I read verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thought of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Let's begin with the first reason why we ought to worship God this Christmas. And that reason, this, that reason is this. Number one, God is the Lord. God is the Lord. Look at verse 46. Mary begins her song by saying this. She said, my soul exalts the Lord. Now notice, right from the get-go, Mary identifies the object of her worship. Now because this is a song, because this is poetry, and you know how if you read psalms or any poetry there's parallelism between verses between lines and that's what she does here you can see here my soul exalts and then she says my spirit exalts so he's saying both my inner person exalts in the lord and because she's vocalizing those uh, the praise of her heart we can say her entire being is worshiping god notice first of all we see here that mary is a worshiper Mary is a worshiper. My soul exalts and I am rejoicing. Notice Mary is not the object of worship, but Mary is a worshiper. MacArthur notes this regarding worship from this text. He says, true worship is spontaneous, not staged. Heartfelt, not artificial. God-centered, not self-focused. Mental, not just emotional. It seeks to honor God, not to manipulate Him. And that is exactly what we see in the psalm. In the song, she's focused completely on God and everything that she says and everything that she declares, God, it is you. God, it is you. God, it is you. It is God-centered. That is an excellent summary of worship in the psalm. Now, what do we know about this Mary? According to genealogy given to us in Matthew chapter 1, we know that Mary was from the line of David. We're introduced to her earlier in this chapter, if you look at verse 26. When Gabriel visits her, it says in verse 26, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So we know that she's from a city called Nazareth. And he came to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, as I already said, most likely at this time, she is a very young teenager. She is a young girl from an insignificant village. And had the Lord not chosen her, she would have been forgotten to history. 
You would know nothing about her. Now also look at her response when Gabriel explained to her what will take place. He says, and Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be to me according to your word. Notice how she views herself. Notice how she identifies herself. She says, I am a bond slave. That's not a very exalted title, is it? No. You see, as you read this, and as you read all the other passages in Scripture regarding Mary, if there was one word that characterized her, it's the word humility. Humility, and that's why in the psalm, she praises God that He exalts those who are humble. As we examine our text, I want to first of all draw your attention to the way she identifies God. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. Now, in many cases, when you read this in the New Testament, the word Lord is equivalent to the Old Testament, Yahweh. And remember, these are Jewish worshipers. And in a sense, this is still Old Testament because New Testament doesn't begin until Acts chapter 2. So all these people, they're living in the New Old Testament. They're all going to the temple. They're all worshiping Yahweh. And she begins by saying, my soul exalts Yahweh. Notice, she doesn't attribute her circumstances to luck, to chance. No, my soul exalts in Yahweh. Why? Because everything that has happened to me has happened because Yahweh has determined it. He is the author of history. It is his story, and he writes it according to his purposes. Here's the point for us. That God deserves to be worshipped simply for who he is. You see, before he does anything, he deserves to be worshipped. Why? Because he is the Lord. And before Mary gets to say anything that he does, and she will say much, and he does much, she first of all worships him simply because of who he is. You see, he is the only God. He is the only Lord, and there is no other God that you can worship. But when we say we have to exalt God, What do we mean by exalting God? What does Mary mean when she says, my soul exalts in the Lord? Simply put, she's basically calling attention to God's greatness. To worship the Lord, to exalt the Lord is to treasure Him. It is to speak of Him. It is to rejoice. It is to declare His awesome name. And that is precisely what Mary does in this text. Now, if there is one God, and there is, How insulting would it be to worship anything or anyone else but Him? If He is the only one, He has no rivals. What was the first commandment that God gave to the nation of Israel? Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment for a reason. Because there are no other gods. And so if you're going to go and worship something else, first of all, you are ascribing worth to something that is worthless. And second, you are robbing God of the glory that is His. That was the first commandment because God tolerates no rivals. Remember in Isaiah 42, verse 8, He says, I am the Lord. Same idea in our text. This is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God is a jealous God. And God deserves to be worshipped simply because of who He is. And that's why Mary identifies Him as the Lord. And she says, my soul exalts in the Lord. Why should you exalt in God this Christmas? Because He's God. 
Before you think of anything that he did for you or didn't do for you, he already deserves worship because he is the only God and there are no other gods besides him. Not only do we worship him because he is the Lord, Mary tells us that we ought to worship him because number two, God is the Savior. God is the Savior. Look at verse 47. She says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now, this statement here gets to the heart of Christmas. Because isn't that what Christmas is all about? Christmas is all about the Savior who was born in Bethlehem. You see, the story of Christmas reaches back all the way to the book of Genesis chapter 3, where the need for the Savior arose. You see, you don't need a Savior if you're not in trouble. You don't need a Savior if you can help yourself. You only need a Savior when you are in a helpless place and you can't help yourself. The trouble that Adam and Eve brought on humanity is truly a place where you need a Savior. Because the trouble you are in, you cannot deliver yourself out of that trouble. And we've talked about this so many different times. As a result of sin, sin entered into the world And men are sinners both by nature and by practice. And there is no cure for sin that you and I could discover. You need somebody from outside to come in and to provide the cure for you. You see, as a result of sin, all men have this problem. That problem is universal. Now, it is true that many do not recognize this problem, and they do not see this as a problem. I mean, sin, of course we all sin. I mean... If you're human, you're going to sin. That's just a normal part of life. And yeah, you can say it is a normal part of life in Genesis 3 world, but that was not a normal part when God created the world, right? God created perfect world where there was no sin, and sin entered into the world and destroyed humanity and destroyed creation. What we are experiencing now in Genesis chapter, after Genesis 3, all the decay, all death, all destruction, it is part of this broken world. And in order for God to deal with the problem of sin, He has to send a Savior. Pain and sufferings of this life are just a precursor for those who do not look for a Savior. They just point to the ultimate end of those who continue in their sin without turning to the Savior. That's why Christmas is important. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because Christmas is about the Savior coming into the world. Now notice what Mary says about the Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now, what does that tell us about Mary? Mary, did you know about your Immaculate Conception? Doesn't sound like. Sounds like you didn't read Papal Edicts or Alfonso de la Guardia's 750-page book on the glories of Mary. No. Mary declares that God is not just Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary declares herself as a sinner. Mary says that I am a sinner who needs a Savior. And this baby who's going to be born through me, who's going to come into this world, he's going to be my Savior. It is not a knock on Mary to say that she was a sinner. Because Mary herself said that. 
Yes, she has been given a great position of honor because no one else occupied that position of being mother of Jesus. And yes, for that she says, yes, I will be exalted for that. But that does not make her sinless. She was a sinner and she told us about it herself. You see, Mary rejoiced in God because God has shown her favor and through her he would send a son into this world who would be fully God and would be fully man and he would deliver her from her sins. You see, only God can save from sins. You see, the problem that we have, we cannot deliver ourselves. All throughout Scripture, God declares this. Isaiah 43:11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Isaiah 45, 1, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Hosea 13.4, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any other God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. And this Savior is born through Virgin Mary. You see, what happened to Mary was truly miraculous. Jesus was born of a virgin, and that was absolutely necessary because there was no man involved. Because Jesus was born of a virgin, because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he does not have a sinful nature that you and I have. Jesus was a sinless man. And because he was born of Mary, he has the nature of a man. He was fully God, and he was fully man. And he had to be fully God, and he had to be fully man, because in order to save you from your sins, he had to die. And God doesn't die. That's why he had to put on human nature. And he had to be fully God because if he were just man, the best he could do, he could save one man. But because he was God-man, his sacrifice was sufficient to save all those whom he will save. See, that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about the birth of a Savior. Now, presents are nice. Parties are nice. But the ultimate reason for rejoicing is the coming of the Savior into this world. And Mary recognized that. Mary recognized that because she says, my spirit exalts in my Savior. Do we recognize that? There are many people who put up lights, put up Christmas trees, get together and have fun without once thinking about the Savior. But that is the reason for the season, the birth of the Savior. First two reasons why we should exalt in God is number one, because He's God, because He's Lord. Number two, because he's the Savior. Now, the rest of the song, Mary focuses on what the Lord does. And I want to summarize it under two more headings. Here's the first one. We should exalt in God this Christmas because he regards the humble and he humbles the proud. Now, this is a theme that runs all through this song. For example, verse 48 For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, in these verses here, Mary focuses specifically on what the Lord has done for her. 
Because she says here, mighty one has done great things for me. Now, if Mary was perfect and sinless, it would not be a surprise to anyone that God chose Mary. Would it? I mean, Mary would be like, well, duh, he chose me. Who else is he going to choose? No. But that's not her attitude. No. She says here, you had regard for the humble state of your bond slave. You see, she recognizes here that she had no earthly significance. Again, she identifies herself as a bond slave. Notice she's not suffering from a delusion of grandeur. Oh, I'm so awesome. I'm so great. No. She recognizes that she's nobody. She's just a slave. And guess what? She wouldn't have it any other way. Because she acknowledges that's what she is. And she acknowledges that the Lord shows mercy. I mean, we read Isaiah at the beginning of the service. Why? Because God says, listen, heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. You're going to build me a house? You're going to fit me in the house? I'm so big. I'm so large. You know, this earth is my footstool. How big is your footstool? But then he says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and who trembles at my words. He says, you cannot build a house for me because I am so grand, I am so large. And yet there is something that gets my attention. And what is that? That humble person who trembles at my words. And that is what Mary shows us here. Mary says, no, you didn't look at the wise and intelligent and smart and rich. You have looked at me. You have recognized the humble state of your servant. And notice she says here, all generations will count me blessed. Well, she was right. 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about her. About that, she was right. Now, the word blessed here, it is the same word that is used in Beatitudes that Jesus used. So obviously, this is not talking about any kind of veneration or worship of Mary. No, she says, all people will regard me as blessed because, wow, who else got a chance to be in my position? No one else got a chance to be the mother of Jesus. That's an awesome privilege. And she says, people will recognize me as blessed. But notice, what is the source of her blessing? Why is she so blessed? Because she's so awesome? No. Verse 49 again, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Notice she gives all the credit to who? To God. God did this not because I'm so awesome, but because he is awesome. For the mighty one has done great things for me. You see, it's not her intrinsic worth that qualified her to occupy that position. But it was God's grace and God's kindness and God's favor upon her. And when she says here, he has done great things for me, I mean, virgin birth is pretty great. I mean, you couldn't explain it then, and you can't explain it now. It wasn't just some, you know, medical intervention. This was miraculous conception. There was no man involved. This is a miracle. This is mighty one. God has done. And it wasn't some kind of a sinful or act on the part of Mary, because she says here, it was the Lord. And guess what? Holy is his name. Holy is his name. God did it. It was a holy act. And you know what? All the credit goes to him. Mighty one has done great things for me. God cannot sin. And he does not participate in sin in any way. And when Mary conceived, it was a holy act by the Holy Spirit. And that's why she says, the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now beginning in verse 50, Mary describes what the Lord has done not only for her, but also for 
Israel. Now we'll come back to that verse, but look how she develops this idea of humility and pride in verse 51. Notice she says here, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Notice there are three groups here that are humbled. There are the proud, there are the rulers, and there are the rich. Now we can say that in one sense, Mary recounts the history of Israel, and she says this is how God acted all throughout the history of Israel. On the other hand, we can also say that Mary is looking forward to what God is going to do through her. Why? Because this song exalts God for what God is doing right now. Not simply what he did in the past, but what God is going to do through the child who's going to be born in her. <clears throat> and she's so confident that God is going to put himself on display that she speaks in past tense. Oh, this is as good as done. This is what the Lord will do. Now, when you consider people of influence, both then and now, you can say these characteristics perfectly summarize them. They're the proud, they're the rulers, and they're the rich. You see, those who attain high position are often very proud. I mean, just listen to some of the politicians we have. The proud, the rich, and the rulers. Now, politically, Mary knows the state that Israel was in. She knows that they are under Roman occupation, and you know that Romans were not shy about exercising their power. If you think about the spiritual condition of Israel at that time, it is no better because for the most part, the people who are religious rulers of the nation at that time, they are power-hungry men who are oppressing the weak and the broken. Just, look at, just listen to the stories that the gospel writers tell us that the religious leaders at that time rejected Christ. They were unconverted men who were just power hungry and were oppressing others. And that's why she says he scattered those who were proud and thought of their hearts. We can scan the history of Israel and we can see many examples of this. For example, how about Pharaoh and his army? How about them? You remember when God sends Moses to Pharaoh and tells him, listen, let the people go. Remember his response? Exodus 5, 2, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. You read the next few chapters, and he found out who the Lord was. When his nation was destroyed, I'm good. When his nation was destroyed, when he and his army were in the bottom of the sea, they found out who the Lord is. The Lord is in the business of humbling the proud. Or how about Nebuchadnezzar? He suffered from I and my disease. Isn't that what that is? It's a very dangerous spiritual condition that may lead to psychotic behavior. It's described in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. It says, The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built? as a royal residence by the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty, I, I, my, my. And what was God's response? Go eat some grass. <laughs> Literally. 
Daniel 4.31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. That's humbling the proud and bringing rulers from their thrones. Now we see that God does that throughout history. But does he ever exalt the humble? How about Joseph in Egypt? Remember he comes to Egypt as a slave sold by his brothers. He's working in Potiphar's house. When he's falsely accused, he is thrown in prison. He spends there two years until one day he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And only then, after suffering for so long and so much, he's elevated and Pharaoh says to Joseph, You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. That is exalting the humble. Because all throughout that story, you read, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him. Yes, in those dark times, God was with him. And when the moment came, God exalted him, and through him, he preserved the nation of Israel. Or how about account of Haman and Mordecai? Remember that story? Haman hated Mordecai because he was a Jew. And he wanted to kill him, annihilate him, not only him, but also all the Jews with him. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? And you recall one, name, one night God took away his sleeve from King Ahasuerus. And just to pass the hours, he invites the men to read the records. And there's an entry there about Mordecai, who saved him from a plot when somebody tried to assassinate him. So he starts thinking like, hey, did we do anything for Mordecai? Finds out that, no, they actually didn't do anything. So he decides to honor him. And in that precise moment, Haman shows up. And you remember what he wanted to do? He wanted to ask for the life of Mordecai. Now, Haman was an exalted official, right? He calls him in and he says, hey, man, what should I do for someone that I want to honor? And do this so arrogant. He's like, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And he says this. This is what I'm going to get right now. That's what he's thinking. For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let, him ro and let, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of king's most noble princes. And let him array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus is it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. And then comes the mind drop. And the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse 
as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short of anything of all that you have said. Man, God is in the business of humbling the proud and exalting the humble. Now, Mary has ample evidence from history that that's who God is. And she looks, looks at her state, she looks at her condition, and she says, listen, there are all these people, all these noble, all these rich, all these rulers, and yet the angel did not come to any of them. He came to this maidservant. He came to this slave girl, to this teenager in a dinky place on the backside of nowhere, and he chose her to be mother of the Savior of the world. One more reason for exalting God this Christmas. God shows mercy and keeps his promises. That's what God does. I mentioned earlier that we'll come back to verse 50. Look again at verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. We ought to exalt God because God is the God of mercy. I said earlier that it is blasphemous to assert that somehow Mary is more merciful than Jesus or the Father. No, God is the God of mercy. We just studied the book of Jonah. And that was the entire point of the book of Jonah, that God is merciful and compassionate with sinners. Now again, if you look at verse 50, you see that this is a quote from the Old Testament. And she quotes from Psalm 103, verse 17, where it says, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to the children's children. The word that is translated mercy in our text is the word loving kindness. And you know what that word is, right? It's the word hesed. God's love, covenant-keeping love. That is the word that we see all throughout Scripture. God's covenant-keeping love is translated as mercy. It is translated as compassion, as His loving kindness. And notice she says here, God's loving kindness is from generation to generation. Why? Because God preserved His people from generation to generation. You remember He made a covenant all the way back in Genesis? He made a promise to Abraham that from you will come seed who will bring salvation. You can go back even further to Genesis chapter 3 when he says, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. And guess what? All throughout those 1,400 years, God was faithful to the nation of Israel. Or you can go back to Abraham 2,000 years. Or we can go back to Adam 4,000 years. God was faithfully keeping his promise and he sustained them. Listen, if it wasn't for the loving kindness of God, the history of Israel would be very short. Right? Because if it was based on their performance, they would have been kicked out many times. And they'd be done, wiped out. But no, the reason that they were still there, the reason they got to marry here, the reason why she can sing the song is because of the loving kindness of the Lord, the covenant-keeping love of God. That's why she says in verse 54, He has given help to Israel, His servant. Why? In remembrance of His mercy or in remembrance of his loving kindness. And then in case we missed it, she says in verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. God is a faithful God. God is a covenant-keeping God. And God made a promise to Abraham, and he kept Israel 
around from generation to generation to generation. And notice he's still keeping that promise because the text says here, and his descendants for how long? Forever. See, God is a faithful God. God makes promises, and God keeps promises. God made promises to Abraham. God made promises to his descendants. And Mary says, listen, I exalt the Lord today because my God is a covenant-keeping God. Because God shows mercy to the humble, God exalts those who are low, is because that's the way God operates. Because that is God's way of doing things. God is a covenant-keeping God. His mercy abounds. And notice, although His common grace is extended to all people, but when we're speaking of a covenant-keeping love, we're talking about much more than just extending someone's life. Because there were people whose lives were extended and who are now burning in hell. You see, you will not experience loving kindness of the Lord in the sense that Mary talks about here unless, as Mary says here, he shows mercy, verse 50, toward, toward those who fear him. To experience the loving kindness of the Lord in a special way, in a salvific sense, it is only for those who fear him. It is those who acknowledge him as the Lord. It is those who recognize Him as a Savior. It is to those who humble themselves and do not continue to walk in pride. And it is toward those who come and beg mercy. That's why He says, that is the Savior that I worship. What a song. I mean, this is walking through this is a great reminder that if we adopt the attitude of Mary, we will not miss the point of Christmas. We will exalt God this Christmas. And even though you will enjoy fun, you will enjoy your family and your friends, but don't miss the reason for the season. Because it's about Christ. It's about God. God is the ultimate object of worship. God came in a lowly manger. Speaking of exalting the humble, there, you cannot think of a higher downgrade than going from heaven to earth. Talk about humbling himself. You know, you might want to think, oh, I want to downsize a little bit, right? Buy a smaller house. I mean, Jesus downsized himself from being worshipped in heaven to coming to earth and being crucified. That's downsizing. He humbled himself, but guess what? As a result of that, it says, for this reason, God, what? Highly exalted him and bestowed in him the name which is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. You see, the story of Christmas is God coming and exalting those who are humble and giving them what they don't deserve. You see, Mary perfectly illustrates the heart of worship, which we should have this Christmas. So let us rejoice. Let us exalt God because He is God, because He is the Savior. Because he humbles those who are proud and exalts those who are humble. And he shows mercy and always keeps his promises. Listen, you have the promises of God that if you trust Christ, he's going to get you to glory. And just like Mary, you can bank on this. You can rest in the fact that your eternity is secured because the Savior was born. And if you in humility trust in him, you can bank on his promise that I will get you to glory. That's a good enough reason to rejoice this Christmas, is it not? 
Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the greatest act of humiliation, stepping down from the glory of heaven into this wretched world, living your life on our behalf and dying in our place. And we thank you that three days later you walked out of that tomb and you have secured victory for us. And we thank you that today we worship you not because we're so awesome, but because your grace was extended to us. Our eyes were open and we understand and we know you. And so we ask that you would do the same this Christmas for many others, that they would hear the message of the gospel, that they would believe, that they would trust, and that they would receive the Savior who came in this season. We thank you for your glory. Amen.